Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. You know, I don't put too much stock in those birth order studies, you know, the ones where they try to draw conclusions about your childhood and your development and your future success by looking for patterns between firstborn and and secondborn and thirdborn siblings, or beyond that if you're a bigger family, or there's even psychology if you're an only child. And this was, you know, Alfred Adler's contributions to psychology in the early 1900s. And if you look at these studies, right, there are a number of broad generalizations that do show up in the data. Firstborns tend to be type A overachievers. Middle children tend to be helpers or activists. Lastborn children tend to be either super successful because all their older siblings poured into them to help them grow, or they tend to struggle because they were the baby of the family and they were never given the opportunity to practice uh, independence. And a lot of studies have been done to show that Adler's work wasn't 100% accurate. You know, your birth order doesn't say much about your personality traits. Uh, but for reasons that remain a mystery, we don't know why. Um, but second-born boys are more likely to end up in prison than any other person in the birth order. Um, they're more likely to get in trouble at school. Or, you know, here's another sort of quirk of birth order. Did you know that 90% of pastors are firstborn children? And it's really frustrating to see these patterns because they remind us that we're guided by forces outside of our control. You know, you and I have zero control in the order of our birth. Uh, We had no say in the matter, right? But it seems like these things can have a lifelong impact. We're nearing the end of Genesis now. We're reading... Uh, today from Genesis 48, and my apologies for the typo in the bulletin today for those of you who are in the church proper. And Genesis has a total of 50 chapters. And if we've learned anything from Genesis thus far, we've learned that the ancient world put a heavy emphasis on birth order, especially this coveted position of firstborn child, firstborn male child in particular. And we've watched throughout the series as men and women have struggled to find happy and fulfilling lives while they chafed against the expectations that their society had on them due to the order of their earthly existence in relationship to their siblings. I could think of at least six different conflicts in the book of Genesis, heartbreaking, life-altering, life-ending conflicts that deal with the question of birth order. Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Rachel and Leah, Joseph and his brothers. And again, that might not mean much to you if this is your first time listening to our series, Um, but these are stories from the book of Genesis that we've studied for across the past year, and the theme of birth order has played out predominantly in each of them. But today, Jacob, the wise elder father of the men who would you know, bring forward the 12 tribes of Israel, which is something that's going to come down the pike here, right? Jacob, the 130-year-old man who has been through the spiritual and emotional ringer 
over the past 47 years or so, that Jacob is about to upset the birth order of the whole um, the whole birth order apple cart in our reading today. Um, he's going to turn it all upside down in its head because uh, today's reading is kind of a fist bump for all of you middle children and, and last born children out there. Today you get to relish in the blessings that are made available to you by the grace of God because, well, God doesn't particularly care about birth order. And for all you first child types like myself, you know, know that there's blessing for us out there as well, though it may not be the blessing we are hardwired to desire. Because the ancient pattern of primogeniture, which is just the fancy word for the firstborn is the favorite, the ancient pattern of primogeniture is going to get two black eyes today, uh, for courtesy of Grandpa Jacob in our reading. And that's what we're going to look at today. In our reading, there are two ways where Jacob, the grandfather, upends the societal birth order expectations of his era. And then we'll talk about why that might be good news for us today after we look at those two uh, things, those two ways that Jacob subverts uh, the customs of his time and era. So here's the first upset. After being reunited with his lost son, Joseph, after 20 years of separation, Grandpa Jacob is now on the verge of death. And so he calls his lost, now found son, Joseph, and Joseph's family into his bedchamber because it's time to share this ancient ritual of the final blessing, which we've seen a number of times throughout the book of Genesis. Here's what Joseph, the grandfather, says. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Lutz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Side note, this is a reference to the uh, the dream of Jacob's ladder. This is where all that took place at Lutz. So Jacob says to Joseph, God appeared to me a dream and, and told me about his promise. And now uh, Jacob continues, And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, your two sons are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. What does this mean? Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine. This is the first upset of our passage, the thing that uh, Jacob is going to do to upset the the tradition of birth order. Um, Jacob has just laid out, you see, a bold modification to his ancient will in terms of who gets what when he dies. Um, Jacob is saying, all right, son of mine, your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, I'm going to count them in my will as if they are, for all intents and purposes, my two sons. It's a bold move, right? Because we know from the reading, Jacob has 12 sons already. That's a lot of sons. And so now he's basically adding two more sons into the mix. So now there are 14 people who are heirs to Jacob's fortune. But what we discover in the next chapter is that Jacob plans to take his actual eldest son, a man named Reuben, and revoke from him the benefits of being the firstborn, including this tradition called the double portion, which is an extra share of the inheritance. Reuben is described in Genesis as strong and powerful, but also as immoral and unstable. Like uh, the, the text likens his lustfulness to like a destructive flood. And true enough, Reuben at one point goes so far as to sleep with one of his father's concubines. And as punishment for this, uh, Jacob is going to demote Reuben from the position of firstborn. 
So that's one thing that's happened, right? The, the firstborn has been demoted, but uh, Jacob's two grandsons have been promoted. And on top of it all, you see Joseph, his son, has done so well in Egypt, he's going to basically skip Joseph. <laughs> Joseph is probably richer than his father at this point. He doesn't need an inheritance. He's doing just fine. And so what happens is the grandpa takes his firstborn's extra portion and Joseph's portion of the inheritance and gives them to Joseph's two sons. Joseph's two sons get a portion of the inheritance apiece. It's as if Joseph himself gets two portions of the inheritance. And so what happens in our reading is symbolically, Jacob has now elevated son number 11, Joseph, the one everyone hated all those chapters ago, the one who had the coat of many colors because his father saw in him leadership potential and white collar management gifting. That son who was sold into slavery because his brothers hated him so much is now symbolically elevated to the position of firstborn child. So that's the first cultural apple cart that Jacob overturns. He reassigns the distinction of firstborn to a member of the family who is not firstborn. Then, as our reading continues, uh, Jacob is going to get even more countercultural. And the second twist uh, in our reading that we're going to talk about here has to do with the blessing of his two grandsons. Joseph presents them, you see. Joseph presents uh, two sons ordered, appropriately, oldest to youngest, to receive the family blessing. And uh, Jacob gives a very potent blessing for these two men and for Joseph. Here's what he says. He wants to include them formally in the promise of God that the family has kept since Abraham uh, received it in Genesis chapter 15. Here's what Jacob says. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been the shepherd all the days of my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on, the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And so Jacob blesses these uh, sons of his now, these grandson types, uh, gives them inclusion into the promise that God made to Abraham and Isaac all that time ago, this divine glue that has been holding the family together now across four generations. But when Jacob blesses the boys, he does something curious. He crosses the right hand over his left hand when he goes to lay his hand on their heads. So the you know when you bless someone, at least anciently, you put your hand on their head. We pastors still kind of do that too, maybe on the shoulder or the head. But the two sons are in front of him, and what happens is uh, Jacob, the grandfather, he crosses his hands. And that means something, because the right hand was seen as to, at the time as being more powerful and more important than the, the left. So the oldest son gets a blessing from the wrong hand. And so Joseph, it, it makes him uncomfortable. He says, Dad, hey, just what are you doing with the hands here? You're, you're doing this cross-armed blessing thing. Um, you know, and here's, uh, he, he thinks he's got to step in and I'll read to you that passage. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head onto Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know my son, I know he also shall become a people and he shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. 
And so Jacob, once again, you see, subverts the expectation of birth order. Because by the grace of God, or maybe just because of his instincts as a, you know, elderly grandfather wisdom, because that is a real thing, Jacob knows that the younger son will bring about a larger and more successful tribe in the future. So he blesses the younger son with the hand reserved for the elder son. Again, he's crossing his arms to do the blessing, uh, to subvert the cultural expectations about birth order. And to say, just because you're the oldest or the firstborn, that doesn't really mean a whole lot of anything. And at the time, that would have been a big deal. He's rejecting this custom which predestined love and affection and favoritism and material success and blessing based on ultimately insignificant factors. You know, we could actually read the entire book of Genesis in this light, that firstborn sons are not special to God. God regularly chooses, you know, second-born sons and eleventh-born sons, the runts of the litter, the middle and the last children to do his work on earth. And sure, sometimes he uses first-born children, that's true, but um, it's, he doesn't do this because, you know, um, it's divinely encoded into his programming. You know, if you read through Genesis with, uh, if you've been reading through Genesis with us this year, you'll see this pattern playing itself out, that God repudiates the idea, God abhors the concept, um, th that, that his love and affection are directly linked to something as silly as birth order. I also don't think, friends, that it's a coincidence that Grandpa Jacob blesses um, with crossed arms, that he crosses his arms to give a blessing, because Jesus' death on the cross and the resurrection that follows it is the ultimate blessing, which is dispensed apart from anything like this sort of first child type of favoritism. You know, this is explicit in the scripture too, right? Um, over and over again, at least four times in the New Testament, right? Um, the text tells us that God shows no favoritism. And the core Christian concept of grace, the affirmation that we're not saved by works, you know, it means that this silly, intangible life reality like birth order well, it doesn't mean anything when it comes to the love of heaven, right? If anything, we were to say, you know, Jesus may be the firstborn and the rest of us just sort of line up behind him. And so I don't think it's coincidence that the, the cross shape is formed when Jacob goes to subvert everything about his culture that is abhorrent to God. I think that the, the cross is an intentional reflection of the actual cross that Jesus Christ will die on in the future. Um, I think... Jacob's cross-arm blessing is right in line with the character of God. And I hope that at some point in your life, you've experienced this cross-arm blessing, where you are loved and blessed when you least expect it, and when the culture around you makes you think that this kind of blessing will never come. You know, I had a cross-armed blessing once that I received when I was 15, you know. Not the exact same thing, we'll see, but, but I want to tell you about my cross-armed blessing. I was a freshman in high school, and I had just started attending the youth programming at my big suburban megachurch that my family had just joined in Richmond. And, you know, that summer, the youth were going to Toronto in Canada to do a mission project. And we would do things like run a vacation Bible school program for kids, build handicap ramps for the poor, that sort of thing. And this is the first time I'd ever gone on a church trip, and I was barely a Christian at the time. Like, I'm not sure my baptism was even dry yet. That's how new a Christian that I was. And frankly, you know, I wanted to go because it's Canada. It was going to be fun, my first time traveling outside of America. But I was scared and anxious about who was I going to bunk with when we got there. 
who was I going to hang out with? I barely knew anyone on the trip. There was one kid that I kind of knew because we went to middle school the year before, but really I didn't know anyone. And it was kind of an adventure for me to, to go on this trip uh, to another country with a group of church kids that I, I didn't know. Um, well, it turns out that that one kid from middle school, his name is Kevin, by the way, um, this one kid named Kevin, he knew I was coming on the trip by myself. He knew it was my first time going on uh, any youth trip at all. Uh, he knew that I didn't know anybody else except for him. And now he was one of the popular kids in the youth group. He had been in the youth group for a number of years. Um, his parents were, you know, big members and supporters of the church. So like th- these were his people, like this was his crowd. And, and what I didn't know until later was that Kevin had gone up to the youth leader and said, hey, you know, Brian's going on this trip. He doesn't know anybody. Um, you know, when you guys put him together to bunk, like, let me let him bunk with me. Because I'm the only guy he knows on this entire trip. And I'll, I've got plenty of time to bunk with my friends and hang out with my other friends later. But I let me bunk with Brian on this trip. Like, I can't tell you um, how uh, what a blessing that was to know that, you know, his friendship... Um, extended to me that way. Like, I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. And that trip was a blast, basically because I was able to room with Kevin. And so his friendship and his reaching out to ask, you know, do you know anybody? Would you please come be a part of my life? Like, that was a cross-shaped blessing. It really was. Um, Because, well, this cross-shaped blessing was a rejection of the cultural norm, right? Who do you want to bunk with? Your friends. Who did everyone expect him to bunk with? His friends. But instead, he goes with someone he barely knows, an outsider. And frankly, friends, that was a key moment in my life. Who knows? Would I even be right here right now as a pastor had Kevin not chosen a functional stranger to room with on that church trip? So that was one of my cross-shaped blessings, something that broke down the cultural barriers to reach out to me in love. Here's another story, a friend of mine. This is her story. She grew up in rural Mississippi. You know, not like the white-collar South, you know, the the genteel South that I grew up in in Virginia. She grew up in the deep South, y'all. And um, this is the land of beauty pageants, right, in the deep South. You know, tiaras and tulle and hairspray, all that sort of stuff. And my friend, as a child, you see, she thought that That would be wonderful. She wanted nothing more as a young girl in the deep rural South than to win a beauty pageant. Well, my friend's, you know, parents made a decision because they're smart and and because they're wise. They said, listen, child, no beauty pageants for you. That's not the world we want you to be in. You know, wonderful parents, you know, like good, right, right, right on them. But you see her grandmother, my friend's grandmother, knowing that beauty pageants were my my friend's de- deep aspiration decided to give her a cross-shaped blessing. At the age of five, you see, my friend was gifted by her grandmother a simple plastic toy trophy with a beauty queen affixed to the top. She held in her two hands a massive bouquet of roses. She was painted uh, bronze, and the figurine at the top of this trophy had a tiara and a radiant smile and a sash. And on the base of the trophy, engraved at the base... Um, It simply listed my friend's name and the fact that she was five years old. And all of a sudden, you see this five-year-old girl, in this five-year-old girl, the quest for validation in her girliness and her blossoming womanhood, well, it was extinguished. She didn't need the validation of becoming a beauty queen anymore because she had a trophy. 
Um, and she knew that she was a winner in the eyes of her parents and grandparents. Um, and she didn't even have to attend a pageant to learn it, <laughs> right? She could win and become a beauty queen without attending the pageant. So her grandmother gave her a cross-shaped blessing, an unexpected gift that pushed against the grain of her deep South culture to affirm that she was indeed loved and beautiful. I'll tell you one last story. This one's a Bible story, in fact. And it's a story about a father who had two sons. And the younger son asked for his inheritance, his portion of the inheritance, early, before his father even died. And that was a profoundly rude thing to do, you see. It was a slap in the face to his father. It was like saying, Father, I wish you were dead. But shocking everyone uh, who was watching this uh, take place, the father grants his request. The father sells off a massive chunk of his estate to give cash to his son, who then took the cash and promptly left. And you see, the son who left was angry. He was bitter for whatever reason. And so he decided to go to the ancient Near East equivalent of Las Vegas, where he gambled all, all gambled all the money away on the craps table and went broke. And homeless and penniless, he ended up getting a job working at a pig farm of all places nearby. But, you know, as he was feeding the pigs night after night, he realized that he was so poor um, that the pigs were eating better than he was. <laughs> and so he thinks, you see, that he, 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 to himself, he says, maybe I can go back to my father. But not to ask for help or to apologize, maybe, just maybe, my father will, will do me the courtesy of giving me a job, right? I, I'll just work for him. I don't need to be his son again. I'll just go work for him. And so he leaves the pig farm and uh, travels home. And he has this whole speech planned out about what he's going to say, and he's um, still a long way off, and he crests the hill and overlooks the family farm. And um, while he was still far off, the father spots him cresting the hill. The father does a number of things that are very unexpected. First off, he hikes up his long, flowy Middle Eastern robes, showing his formerly hidden legs to the world. You don't see very many um, legs on ancient uh, patriarch elder types. You know, that was sort of an undignified thing. They were too old for that, you know. So, but he hiked up his, his, um, his robes, his flowy ancient Near East robes, and showed off his legs to the world. Um, again, people who've seen his legs like this before, like... Him, his wife, and that's probably about it. And so he hikes up his robe and he starts to run. And that's another thing that older um, sort of genteel patriarch types didn't do. They were the revered sort of genteel, um, uh, sophisticated types because they'd lived through it and seen it all. They didn't need to run. But this man, this father did, and he booked it. He starts running up the hill straight to where he sees his son coming back into town. And you would expect that when the father uh, reunited with his son, if this was the way the world worked, um, what you would see is something akin to a public uh, shaming or a dismissal or maybe even just a punch to the chin. But instead, the father wraps his arms around him in an enormous bear hug and squeezes tight and, and begins to kiss him over and over and over again. And what he does is he calls out to the family farm behind him and says, My son who is dead is now alive. Break out the booze and fire up the barbecue. It is time to party. That is, of course, the parable uh, that Jesus shares in Luke 15. And the father, you see, he breaks all of these cultural noise to shower his son in cross-shaped blessings. He doesn't ask for the money back. In fact, he spends more money to throw the big party. He doesn't use shame. He doesn't use public embarrassment to get petty revenge. He throws him a party, gives him new clothes, and showers him with love and affection. 
So like I said earlier, I, I hope you've experienced uh, the, a cross-shaped blessing in your life, a moment of blessing and love and care that you didn't expect or, or think you deserved, but you experienced an act of sacrificial love that subverts your expectations and the expectations of the culture around you. Maybe you've had one before and you're just beginning to realize um, with the benefit of hindsight just what a cross-shaped blessing it really is. And maybe that God's fingerprints are on that cross-shaped blessing. And maybe today you're kind of feeling like you could use one, that you might want one to do for yourself. And so you'd like God to grant you one in the very near future. Pretty please, Lord in heaven, sugar on top, right? Um, and so what I want you to do is I want you to keep an eye out for those unexpected blessings. As one um, writer famously uh, recently reflected, she said, grace often comes as a surprise. And sometimes the love of God manifests itself in these cross-shaped blessings. And so keep an eye out for surprises. You never know which of them are secretly the work of God for you. So friends, I tell you today that when it comes to God's love, it doesn't matter whether you are firstborn or lastborn or the only child. It doesn't matter if it's your first time um, or your fifth time on the mission trip. It doesn't matter if you ran off to Las Vegas and blew your inheritance on the craps table. It doesn't even matter if you entered the contest. Your zip code, your bank account, your family heritage, your skin color, your behavior, none of it will make you more lovable to God, and none of it will disqualify you from God's love. It's all ultimately meaningless to the divine calculus of heaven. And so see in our reading today, friends, a sample of what God's love looks like. It breaks down social conventions, it lands on those who least deserve it, uh, and it looks like a cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Ligonier, Pennsylvania.